Our text uh, this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses uh, 16 through 33. This morning, we'll be focusing just on the first part of this text, and so I won't read the text in its entirety. I will next Lord's Day. But this morning, I want to read uh, the opening verses of this text uh, down through verse uh, 23, 16 through 23, although the whole text, as I say, goes through verse 33. So here are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. We'll end the reading with that statement. Paul, the apostle, hated boasting of all kinds. Didn't matter what it was. Uh, You could boast in the house you lived in. Isn't it spectacular? Isn't it wonderful? Boasting in one's income or possessions. Or resources boasting in uh, the schools one graduated from or the degrees that someone earned boasting in one's ethnicity boasting in one's experiences in life notable accomplishments on one's resume and the list could be extended Paul detested boasting of all kinds but that hadn't always been the case if you know his story Before his conversion, Paul was as arrogant and as boastful as anyone could possibly be. He was boastful and arrogant, prideful about, among other things, his heritage, his education, his Roman citizenship, his accomplishments in life, how religious he was, how zealous he was in all things. That had been Paul's spirit before he met Christ on the Damascus Road. And Paul relates some of this in the book of Philippians chapter 3 in the last part of verse 4 through verse 6 where this is what he writes. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh or boasting, I have more. Do you want the list? Paul says, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That used to be my boast and more besides. But then Paul goes on, if you know the next verse, Philippians 3 and verse 7, he goes on to say, but since my conversion, 
I have counted all these things as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul's attitude now was, if you want to boast, I encourage you to do so and boast in the Lord as much as you can. Boast in the character of our Lord. Boast in the works he has done. Boast in his mercy and his grace. If that's what you're going to boast in, may the Holy Spirit empower you to boast more and more about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. But what had happened in Corinth is false teachers had come in. Paul, earlier in this chapter, sarcastically calls them the super apostles. And uh, these false teachers, these false apostles, were just marked by a sense of their own superiority. They were so much superior to Paul. I mean, Paul doesn't hold a candle to any of us. And did they ever boast? They boasted in their accomplishments. They boasted in the connections that they had. You know, I know so-and-so. Um, I know one of the apostles, in, I mean, they boasted in all their connections, they boasted in their gifts, they boasted in their visions and their revelation, the places they had been, the number of miles they had traveled, uh, the miracles they had done, the successes they could chalk up to their efforts, all of those things. And so they came to Corinth with that kind of a boastful spirit, and they were very charismatic personalities besides all of that. And sadly, their personalities very winsome, very charismatic, uh, along with all these boasts of look at what we've done, look at how God has been at work, and the Corinthians are like, wow, that is amazing. They were impressed. I mean, they looked at Paul, and they looked at these newcomers, and these newcomers outshine Paul in about every way you can think of. And so because the Corinthians were impressed by these newcomers, uh, with their background, their education, all these stories they could tell when they preached, those kinds of things. And because they were very winsome, charismatic kind of personalities, the way was opened then for some in the church to gullibly embrace their false teaching. The way was opened for some in the church to begin to question, is Paul really an apostle after all? He doesn't have all this cool stuff like these folks do. Is Paul really an apostle after all? And if he's not, maybe the gospel message he brought is bogus also. And so something had to be done. And so to counteract their deadly influence, Paul comes to the unwelcome conclusion that he needs to engage in some boasting himself. Something he absolutely despised, but he needs to meet the enemies on their own ground. And so as chapter 11 opens, if you look back to verse 1, Paul gives them a heads up as to what he's going to do. So you notice chapter 11, verse 1, I he says to the Corinthians, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Put up with a little exercise that I'm going to do here, Paul says. And you notice as our text begins, verse 16, Paul says, I repeat, he's repeating verse 1, bear with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. I'm not actually a braggart. I'm not actually a fool. Okay, understand, bear with me in this, I'm playing a part to make a point, Paul says. But what does he say in our text? If some of you conclude, well, that Paul really is a fool after all. Okay, if that's what you conclude, at least show me the tolerance and the patience that you would show to a real fool 
so that I can do a little bit of boasting. And so you notice what Paul says in the text, what I'm going to do, verse 18, boasting according to the flesh, which is what the imposters were doing, Paul says, verse 17, it's not something Jesus would ever do. Understand that, Paul says. I am not doing as the Lord would do, but I'm playing a part. Bear with me in this. I'm making a point. Uh, and you actually should listen to what I have to say because he says to the Corinthians sarcastically, you are, after all, so brilliant, you Corinthians. You are so wise. And he says, you put up with any religious fool who shows up in town. And you notice how he describes them, verse 20. I mean, you are so smart, Paul says. You put up with fools who are domineering, who exploit you, who are aggressive, who are authoritarian, who are not really interested in you, but only what they can get out of you. But you are so deceived, Paul says, you are so dazzled by them that you put up with all of it. Who really is the fool in all of this, by the way, Paul's asking, kind of between the lines. And so, as Paul talks about these ones who have come who are domineering, exploitive, aggressive, authoritarian, Paul says with a great deal of biting sarcasm in verse 21, much to my shame, I am far too weak to treat you that way. I'm, I'm just not up to treating you with exploitation and aggressiveness and a domineering spirit. I, I'm just too weak for that, Paul says with sarcasm. And, and with all of that lead-in, Paul finally launches into what scholars call his fool's speech. And it is, a, it is a boasting speech that runs from the end of verse 21 all the way through chapter 12 and verse 10. And you notice how Paul begins his speech, how he begins this litany of boasting. Verse 21, he starts by boasting about some of the main things that his opponents boasted of. And Paul says, whatever claim they make, Whatever claim they've made as they've come to Corinth, I can make the same and even more so. And you notice if you look at verse 22, we discover in verse 22 what the identity of these false teachers actually was who came to Corinth. And who were they? They were in their own mind Jewish Christians. They talked about Jesus, faith, gospel, but it's like, but here's the stuff you got to do. Here's the rules you have to abide by. If you want to be pleasing to God, they presented the Mosaic Law, the dietary rules, all these things. This is what you need to observe. Faith in Christ is wonderful. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he rose again. But here's the stuff you got to do, they said. And so they were Jewish Christians in their own minds proclaiming the centrality of the Mosaic Law because it's through the law that you obtain a right standing with God and you keep it. And so they opposed Paul's message that righteousness is found only in the it is finished of Calvary. Paul taught and preached in accordance with the scriptures that our righteousness is not our own. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And when by grace through faith I trust in Jesus, when I receive him as my Savior, Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to me and God sees me as holy and perfect in his sight. And the false teacher said that's not how it works. There's stuff you've got to do. And so... 
their message was a deceitful message. They used all the same terms. If you go back and look at chapter 11 and verse 4, they, used, they talked about Jesus, they talked about the Holy Spirit, they say, we bring you the gospel, but what does Paul say? They're actually bringing you another Jesus. If you get right down to it, they're bringing you another Holy Spirit, as it were. They're bringing another gospel, which is no gospel at all, as he says to the Galatians. And so they boasted. What was central to their boasting? Notice verse 22, the fact that they were genuine Jews. Because after all, the Jews are God's chosen people. God spoke to Moses. Uh, we recognize Jesus as the Messiah. We are truly Jewish folks, and we honor all of God's word, including the Old Testament law and all the rules and regulations there. And so, for them, they were the ones that proclaimed the real gospel, they told the Corinthians. And so Paul tackles this head on. You notice in verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. If this is important to you, Paul says to the Corinthians, so they're Hebrews, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So these false teachers boasted in their Jewishness. They boasted that they knew the Old Testament. They could read the Hebrew language. They boasted in their racial purity, all cultural Jewish things we follow, we observe. We're members of God's chosen people. And Paul says to the Corinthians, if these false teachers think these things are impressive, and if you Corinthians think that's the case as well, let me remind you, I'm just as Jewish as they are, if you want to go down that road. And so whatever term you want to use, Paul says, whether you want to use the term Hebrew or Israelite or seed of Abraham, Paul says, I'm all of those things. And if that is their boast, take it for what it's worth, which is nothing, Paul says. In God's sight, one's heritage, one's racial background, those things mean nothing. What does Paul say elsewhere? You are one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You're all one in Christ. So these things they boast in mean nothing in light of the cross, in light of the gospel. Doesn't mean anything in the eyes of God. But if, if you think it's important, I'm just as Jewish as they are, just so you know, Paul says to them. And to cap it off, you notice in verse 23, Paul says they claim to be servants of Christ. And Paul says, now for the sake of argument, let's assume they are. Let's assume they are. Guess what? I'm a far better one. And then he says in parentheses, now I'm really talking like an insane person. But he says, let me explain to you, to you Corinthians, what the marks of a true servant of Christ really are what the marks of an apostle really are. And, and so Paul has talked about his ethnic background, and I'm a servant of Christ, I'm a far better one, I, I'm insane for even talking like this, and what do we expect to read in the next words? Here are all the things I've accomplished. They set their accomplishments up here, let me put mine next to theirs. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do what the Corinthians expect, he doesn't do what we might expect him to do. Uh, D.A. Carson, great uh, evangelical scholar of our day, writes this. He said, if Paul had continued boasting in the way his opponents boasted, in, not only in race and heritage, but in ministry and accomplishments and all of that, we would ex have expected Paul to have written something like the following. I have established more churches. I have preached the gospel in more lands and to more ethnic groups. I have traveled more miles, I have won more converts, I have written more books, I have raised more money, 
I have dominated more councils. I have walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I have commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles. But he doesn't say anything of the kind. And much to the surprise of the Corinthians, much to our surprise, Paul establishes his genuine apostleship by saying, look at what I've suffered and the trials I've been through. He doesn't trumpet his successes. He directs the Corinthians to the sufferings that have marked his life from one end to the other. And in verse 23, Paul begins a list of afflictions. It's the longest list anywhere in the New Testament. And he mentions four general areas of suffering that he is going to elaborate on as the chapter continues. And you notice those basic areas of suffering are in verse 23. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Compared to my rivals, he says, my labors surpass theirs. I have experienced far greater hardships, Paul says, than they have experienced. When it comes to suffering for Christ, I've been in prison more times than I can count, way beyond what is true for them. I've been beaten severely more times than I can count. I have oftentimes been face to face with death, Paul says. But such circumstances that Paul touches on here in this chapter, Paul had said earlier that they are part and parcel of what it means to be an apostle. Back in uh, chapter 4 and verse 11 of this book, Paul says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Paul says, that's what has marked my life and my ministry. Now, before we look at some of the specific sufferings, we're going to tackle that next Sunday, the rest of this section, the specifics of what Paul went through. I want to make sure that we put all of Paul's suffering in its right context. And we need to start with his conversion on the road to Damascus. When you turn to the book of Acts, there are three accounts of Saul of Tarsus's conversion experience, the Apostle Paul. Luke describes the event in chapter 9, and then Paul, on two separate occasions later in the book, Acts 22 and Acts 26, he repeats the story with some additional details as he retells it. And so what is the story of Saul of Tarsus's conversion, Paul's conversion? Well, it begins with Saul the persecutor, doesn't it? Acts chapter 3 and verse 8, Luke says this, Saul was ravaging the church. Those are his words. In Jerusalem. He was entering house after house, Luke says, tracking down where Christians might be, having them arrested, having them imprisoned, having them put on trial. But from Paul's standpoint, sadly, he couldn't catch every one of them. Some of them got away. And those who escaped ended up going to various other cities in the Middle East with their families many times. They left Jerusalem, so they were scattered. But, but Paul wasn't content with, I've arrested all I can find and everybody else has made a run for it. Good, the holy city is clear of these rebels and these false teachers. No, Paul wanted to track down every last person who had made a run for it. 
They have to be pursued. They have to be rooted out. They have to be apprehended. They have to be brought back in chains to Jerusalem for imprisonment and for trial. And so when you come to Acts chapter 9, Paul, or Saul, goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and he receives letters of extradition. He's going to be traveling to Damascus and he has letters giving him authority to arrest and apprehend and take back to Jerusalem any believers he can find who have made a run for it from Jerusalem and who are hiding out in Damascus. And undoubtedly when that was accomplished, Paul would have taken the next city, the next, the next. This was just the first in his list. He had many more to go. So he's on his way to Damascus to track down Christians. Maybe he has some names. Maybe he has some ideas of who he's looking for. And he's going to arrest them. He's going to bring them back to the city. But what does Luke tell us? As he drew near to the city, and Luke gives us the time, it was noon, a brilliant light, brighter than the sun, a blinding light, shone from heaven, and Saul of Tarsus fell to the ground. The circumstances were these. We know from history, of course, from the Bible, that pious Jewish men prayed three times a day. Daniel, remember in the book of Daniel, he'd open his window, he would face Jerusalem, he'd pray toward Jerusalem three times a day, the book of Daniel says. Pious Jews kept up that practice. So in Paul's day, this was something the Pharisees thought was very important to continue. And so they would pray three times a day, at nine in the morning, at noon, and at three in the afternoon. And so as it was noontime, Luke tells us, and it was time for prayer. So Paul got off whatever animal he was riding, stood on the ground, found which way was south, because Damascus is north of Jerusalem, turned, faced south, started his prayer. I wonder how far he got in his prayer. And so there he is praying when all of a sudden, this brilliant light, blinding light, supernatural light, surrounds him and he collapses to the ground and he cries out, Who are you, Lord? Can you imagine his shock? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, it will be told you what you are to do. And since he had been blinded by the light, Luke tells us he was led by the hand into the city. For three days he was blind. He was so overwhelmed and shocked. I mean, his whole religious world had been shattered, turned upside down, whatever figure of speech you want to use. Nothing he had believed. I mean, it was all gone. It was all shattered. It was all broken. He was so overwhelmed, he didn't eat or drink anything for three days. And then what happened? Then in a vision, God comes to a believer in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And he says, I want you to go to the house where Saul of Tarsus is staying. By the way, here's his address. Write it down. I want you to go to the house and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. Ananias says, not so, Lord. There is no way. I know about Saul of Tarsus. He is the most vicious, violent, hater of Christians and persecutor there is. I'm not going anywhere near him. But what does the Lord say to Ananias? And here it is in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And notice these words, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. First thing the Lord says at the Apostle Paul's conversion. 
Well, Ananias goes, he lays hands on him, and the and, and book of Acts says he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul. I mean, I mean, can you imagine this? Okay, this guy who's trying to kill every Christian he can get his hands on now, like Brother Saul. But that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? Everything is new. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And he received his sight. Luke says he was baptized and he ate something for the first time in three days. But you notice the Lord's words. As my chosen apostle, what is going to mark your life and ministry from this day forward is significant suffering. That is going to be the mark of your apostleship. Great suffering for the sake of my name, for the sake of the gospel. And we get in our text, as we'll see in detail next week, a partial list of what Acts 9 is talking about. But, but you go a little bit beyond Acts chapter 20, a couple decades after the Damascus Road experience. Paul is in the city of Ephesus for the final time. And uh, he tells the church, he tells the elders of the church, I'm not going to ever be coming back to Ephesus again. This is my final visit. It's my final goodbye. And as, as Luke records the incident, as they knelt down to pray, he said there were just, everybody was weeping. There was tremendous tears because they knew they'd never see each other again. But as, as Paul begins his address to the elders of the church in Ephesus, here is near the very beginning of his address what he has to say. This is Acts 20. It says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, notice these words, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Well, isn't that what Acts 9 said from this time on? But I do not account my life of any value. He that would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Imprisonment, afflictions wait me every place I go. All I care about is not my life, my comfort, how many years I have left, but to give testimony and witness as long as I'm here to the gospel and grace of God. And after Paul spoke those words, he died as a martyr about seven, eight years later, beheaded in Rome at the orders of Emperor Nero. Next week, as I say, we'll look at the specifics of what Paul lays out in this passage. But let me just briefly, in, in closing, remind you that what was true for, fall, for Paul is uh, true for every believer that there are sufferings for Christ. If you would live out and out for Christ, there will be consequences for that. If you hide your light under a bushel, nobody knows. Well, that's a different thing. But if you live out your testimony for Christ, if you live unashamed as a Christian, there will be trials. And it's not the trials that Paul talks about here in this passage. We're going to notice next week he talks about shipwrecks and facing bandits in the wilderness and crossing flooded raging rivers and enduring physical abuse and sitting in jail for periods of time. Okay, that, that may not be the case for any of us. But listen to these words. Paul writes 2 Timothy just before his execution. 
in Rome. Writes to young Timothy, who is his co-worker. He's been mentoring him. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you live so that your light shines, there'll be consequences of that. What does Peter say? 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you live a clear, strong testimony for Jesus, you will be ostracized, you will be mocked, you will be marginalized, may have impact if you're in school, may have impact with your work. I mean, all kinds of things could possibly happen. But Peter says, when that happens, don't be ashamed. Let your light shine. You know, you think about us in the American church so often, what is it that we seek? And this is from our gospel lesson again this morning. We seek security. We do all that we can to maximize comfort, to maximize safety. We don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to have hard times. We just want to be able to live our lives, or could I even say drift along and nobody be any the wiser what we believe in our hearts. But when you can say like Paul says, Earlier in this book, chapter 5 and verse 14, the love of Christ constrains me. When you are filled with overwhelming gratitude that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for you, gave his only son over to death for you, when you understand that, when you believe that, when you receive that, when that becomes central, when that grabs hold of you on the inside, if you are truly saved, if you are converted, if you are born again, your life has been changed by the grace of God, if that's really true and that's on the inside and that is at the center of all things, the, the only response then is to give your life away. The only response is to say, Lord, here is my life. Everything I have, my life is in your hands. Whether trial comes or persecution comes, I seek your glory above everything else. And so whatever comes as a result of standing strong for Christ, whatever trials, whatever hardships, whatever marginalization, whatever ostracism comes, we receive it. We accept it because we've heard Jesus call, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Luke adds the word daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. And when you and I do that, when we walk with Jesus, we walk the way of the cross, there's glory to come, but glory isn't now. Just as Jesus went to the cross and then the glory that followed. We in this life walk the way of the cross. There is glory assured. There's a mansion, by the way. Doesn't John say that? A place prepared of beauty and splendor and glory. There is a place of glory to come, but glory isn't now. The cross is now. And when you and I walk with Jesus, the way of the cross, we know that as we live our lives, God is glorified. We're not ashamed, as Peter says. And there is to come, when we're at home with the Savior, that glory which inevitably follows. Let's pray together. Lord, um, the Apostle Paul 
as we shall see, went through an amazing experience of trial and suffering beyond anything that we can imagine or identify with. But yet there was joy. He could say, for to me to live is Christ. The love of Christ constrains me. There was a joy in his heart. There was a joy evident in his ministry because he knew that he served a risen Savior. He knew that he proclaimed a gospel which, when received, changes hearts and lives, brings forgiveness, brings new life. One is saved. One is born again. And so, Lord, uh, in our lives, we don't face that level of persecution. We're not hunted down as in other places of the world where churches are burned, homes of Christians are burned, terrible things happen all around our world uh, every week as Christians face incredible suffering. Lord, we've been sheltered from it in this land for many, many years. But Lord, if we seek to live godly, as Paul says to Timothy, there will be persecution in one form or another that will come our way. But Lord, may we receive it from your hand as part of your will for us. May we receive it with joy and may we seek to bring glory to your name through all things. You are worthy of all glory and praise and honor, O Lord, now and forever. And so we lift our hearts to you in worship and adoration and in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.